You're listening to the Heart of Giving podcast with Art Taylor, powered by BBBgive.org. Here we explore the motivations that form the basis of giving and service. We inspire generosity and celebrate the transformative effects that giving and service have on the human spirit and on community. The conversations featured on the podcast also uncover giving strategies that educate and provide tools to help listeners make impactful gifts of both their time and money. We hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the Heart of Giving podcast, powered by BBBgive.org. Give.org is the nation's standards-based charity evaluator, and it's your one-stop source for information on giving and reports on the most asked about charities. I'm Art Taylor. I go back a long way in my career. When I started work about a thousand years ago, I didn't know what I wanted to do when I graduated college or, well, when I graduated, I knew, but I certainly didn't know what I wanted to do when I entered college. I didn't have a lot of exposure to different professions. And in fact, the only thing that made sense to me entering college was that I could be a professional baseball player or professional basketball player. And we all know what long shots those careers are. And in fact, uh, I was not talented enough to be a professional athlete. So I had to pick something else while I was in college. You have to major in something in college. And I looked around and saw that in the newspapers, all of the jobs available at the time seemed to be in accounting. If you went to the one ads, the pages were filled of jobs in the accounting profession. I didn't know anything about accounting, but I knew I had to have a job when I graduated. So I decided I would major in accounting. And lo and behold, uh, after a lot of struggle getting through the program, which was a very rigorous program at my college, Franklin and Marshall College, I did graduate and was fortunate enough to get placed in one of the big eight accounting firms. And it was quite an experience. I learned a lot, but I'll also say that those early days in public accounting were not, let's say, inclusive <laughs> in, in the light of how we try to describe jobs today. We think jobs should be, people should be included in all ways so that they can contribute as much as they're able to and people can feel fulfilled. Well, I entered my accounting job. I was one of 197 professionals in the Philadelphia office of this accounting firm. And I was the only black accountant, the only black accountant out of 197 people. And when you enter a firm like that, they usually have we had about 20 others starting with me at that time. Shortly after you get through a short orientation period, you're placed with a client and you start your career working on different client audits. While all my colleagues marched to 
get their jobs uh, working with uh, different clients, I sat in the office for about two months before I could get placed with a client. So all my other colleagues are out working on these audits and I'm sitting in the office, as I mentioned, the only black, not getting an opportunity to actually learn a profession by working and contributing on an actual audit. And so I didn't know what was going on, but years later I looked back and I said, obviously, I don't know why I was there because they certainly could have uh, not hired me, but to hire me and then not give me a chance to work was pretty rough. Finally, I did get some opportunities after sort of sticking up for myself and asking what is going on here. But by the time I got those opportunities, it was too late because my colleagues were now ahead of me. I wasn't going to be able to progress as rapidly as them for sure. And my career as an accountant, at least with that firm, wasn't going to go anywhere. Fortunately for me, one of the things that I did do was get a chance to audit a nonprofit organization, Opportunities Industrialization Centers, that was founded by Black people. Later on, I was hired by that organization to be its CFO. And from there, my career in the nonprofit sector took off. But how many people actually get those kinds of opportunities? And more importantly, to go back to the origins of this story, where do young African-Americans in particular, and now women too, get to experience careers that aren't plentiful around them? You see, many of my colleagues in the accounting profession knew others who were accountants. I didn't know anybody who was an accountant. I knew what accounting was. And where do young people learn to understand what these professions do, to get the experience they need to thrive, and even to get the exposure to know it might be something they're interested in? Well, we're going to talk about today's tech world, which is where a lot of the positions are. In fact, I just looked at a study by the Bureau of Labor Statistics, and it says that between 2020 and 2030, the number of jobs in tech will increase by about 13%. And the average wage in this field is about $94,000 compared to about $47,000 in all other jobs. So it's a well-paying job, and it's a job that where there are plenty of opportunities. But yet we also know that it's also a field where blacks are underrepresented. And it also seems that given that underrepresentation, a lot more needs to be done to make sure that they're able to fill these jobs. And with me today is someone who's actually working on that. Kimberly Bryant, the founder of Black Girls Code, And many of you may have heard about this. It's been getting a lot of attention in the media as it should. And it's seen as one of the great interventions that can help us with this great dilemma. Many job opportunities, but we need more people to fill those jobs. And Kimberly is one of the people working on that. So we're going to talk with Kimberly about 
about her career, what led her to do this, how she's faring, what are the real opportunities that we see here and what can we all do to help? Kimberly, welcome to the Heart of Giving podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. So Kimberly, you heard that long and (laughs) arduous introduction. I, I wonder if you do see any parallels between my story and what may be going on now in the tech industry. Yes, I I actually do see a lot of parallels. Um, Also, I see parallels in terms of my own career journey, if you will, to becoming the founder of this nonprofit organization, Black Girls Code. So somewhat like you, I went to college coming out of high school with very little tangible role models in in terms of engineering. You know, my major, I chose to major in engineering, electrical engineering, and growing up in Memphis, Tennessee, in the city, I did not have any really role models that had that background and experience. So I landed in college a bit naive in terms of what the field entailed and had to kind of make my way on my own in some ways throughout college and into starting my career and saw some of the same things you experienced for myself and in terms of having peers that were, you know, white peers, male peers, getting opportunities and getting access that I didn't always think I I received as the only woman and often the only black woman or black person throughout many of the positions I held throughout my career. So if you fast forward to, and now look back, but fast forward at that time to 2010, when I was considering founding Black Girls Code, it was primarily because I knew that making pathways as a woman in the tech industry was a very difficult and challenging uh, endeavor. And I saw my daughter going on that similar pathway And I wanted to create an opportunity, not just for her, but also for other girls that were interested in engineering to find a community and to perhaps be able to help each other to navigate the culture and the cultural challenges and the, I want to say, the lack of democratization, if you will, of opportunity within the tech industry and within STEM in general that I experienced throughout my career. So it very much was, an, a, I would say, a vision to create the future that I wanted to see for other Black women in the field, and that hopefully by really creating this robust pipeline, we would be able to, I would say, create safe, safer spaces, safer spaces for Black women who were interested in beginning STEM careers and I want them, hopefully, to alleviate some of the issues that both you and I had along our career journeys. Kimberly, I have to admit, my son is a software engineer for a pretty well-known social media platform. He and I talk often about the challenges in getting people of color, in particular, jobs in these organizations, it sometimes seems that in addition to the overall 
challenge in finding the right talent, there seem to be cultural barriers as well to understanding uh, or to getting the incumbents to accept people of color. I don't know if you've seen any of that, but I'm trying to understand why, if you are a firm clearly needing talent, that you would be so cavalier about hiring people of color when they come to you um, seeking these opportunities? I think that's a great observation. And and I want to say to answer your question, it's a phenomenon that's really built on this notion of pattern matching, if you will. So prior to, I consider myself a bit of an OG in the technology industry because you know, when I received my degree at the end of the 80s, that was the beginning, if you will, of this Web 2.0. Uh, maybe it was even considered Web 1.0 at that time in the mid 80s. And the industry was just beginning and there was there was some diversity there because the places that had been utilizing technology at, at this type, software technology at that time, were coming out of governmental industries. So there were some women involved as the earliest computer scientists. There were some people of color. As the industry transitioned into the Web 2.0 in the 90s, late 90s, and the early 2000 aughts, the industry tried to start to change. So it became very white male dominated. And so there's the pattern of the Mark Zuckerberg or the Bill Gates, what a computer scientist looks like, this typical nerdy white male imagery that has really predominantly been the gist of this industry for the last several decades. So now we talk about a new generation of diverse coders uh, from various traditionally marginalized communities trying to enter this industry, and they don't look the same as the folks that have been there before. And I think what your son describes and what I see in my work as well is that it's difficult to now teach folks to look beyond their innate biases of of what a successful computer scientist and innovator looks like and how they present themselves. And even I would take it even further as we see with the young people we work with often, how they learn, how they navigate culture and bring that culture into the work that they do and the things that interest them from a, a creative standpoint. And I think that is something that It's a challenge we probably won't overcome until we have more of us in place. And so that's why it's sort of like the chicken or the egg phenomenon when we talk about these issues. It's like, yes, we need to get more people in place that come from diverse communities. And yes, most likely these places that we're seeking them to open up opportunities within may not be ready to receive them until there are more of us in position. So there's a very, very deeply rooted systemic biases that we are facing and trying to overcome just to get more of us into the industry. Well, what would you say is the the opportunity here? I mentioned some statistics early on about the job shortage. What What are we really talking about 
in terms of opportunity? I think one of the things beyond just the opportunity value proposition in terms of salaries and and what we look at in the industry is that one of the areas where there is still a robust pipeline for employees and creatives is in the tech industry. You know, there's supposed to be 1.4 million jobs just in the U.S. alone, 1.4 million jobs available to folks that have a computer science degree or computer science background within the next several decades. And that is continuing to increase exponentially as more and more of our industries really adopt technology as the foundation of how they work. And I can't, I often say it's it's very difficult for me to think an industry or industry vertical that doesn't rely heavily on technology today. So these are jobs that may not just be at traditional tech enabled or tech companies like a a Google or Facebook or Twitter or Slack or things that we traditionally think of as a tech company. These are in all industry verticals. So I spent a lot of time or I spent some time over the last month at NASA and in conversations about the future of space travel, heavily, heavily embedded tech industry and tech innovation and everything that you could possibly think of when it comes to space exploration. When you look at media, even the tools and software we're using for this interview today, it's built on a tech platform. Mass media relies heavily on technology. When we look at urban development, it relies heavily on technology. So every single industry has technology as a foundational tool so it's important if we want to build opportunity for this next generation of black and brown students we have to involve them in learning these technical skills because whatever area they go into they're going to need to utilize technology as a foundation of their work Kimberly at Black Girls Code you talk about the importance of closing the gap mm-hmm. What is the current gap as you see it right now? So when I talk about the gap, I I talk about this technology gap. So when we look at teaching girls to code or teach, I won't even say teaching students and the next generation about technology, there's several pieces to this gap, if you will, that I would say prior to the pandemic, perhaps we all thought that gap was very much so narrowing. I think the pandemic showed us that that it is not because there's so many students and learners across the U.S. who were disconnected that did not have broadband access, were not able to do learning virtually, remotely. We saw folks that were not able to contact and take advantage of all of the new telemedicine opportunities during the pandemic when people could not get into the doctor's office. So the digital divide is something I I would say we've been talking about this digital divide issue since the early 90s. And thinking that as more and more communities became connected, the digital divide is no longer or was no longer an issue here in the U.S. as it is in and I would say emerging communities and countries. But it is. When we look at other countries, even in places that we would consider 
perhaps not as technologically advanced as the U.S., we can see that that digital divide in the U.S. is very much a reality when countries all across Africa have greater broadband access than we do right here in the U.S. That is an issue of access to tools that will allow you to address this knowledge gap that we have. So the divide is multi-tiered, in my opinion. There's the very specific access gap that our communities across the U.S. are not all connected by broadband, which limits our ability to then address the knowledge gap of being able to teach these new skills or even be able to connect communities, primarily communities of color, to these opportunities and access to tech tools and tech interfaces that allow them to just live. So I think there's work to be done, not only in terms of organizations such as Black Girls Code and really teaching these technology skills, but there's work to be done even in pushing our powers that be to connect us fully as a nation so that everybody can have equal access to the tools and knowledge and opportunities that technology provides. Now, I understand that the number of black women who are taking STEM classes has dropped. Am I, am I getting that right mm-hmm. over the last 30 years or so? Or we Absolutely. Yeah. Talk about that. Yeah. So I often, you know, really share this, one of the statistics that sort of, if you will, stopped me in my tracks when I was creating this organization. And When you look at the numbers of bachelor's degrees that were awarded to women, women from all races here in the U.S. in the mid-80s, the computer science bachelor's degrees for women were about 35, 33 percent. Now, as a person um, who identifies as a woman who was going through college at that time, I can tell you that there were not that many women computer scientists that I experienced. No, none of my professors whatsoever were women. So even though nationally the number was 35%, as an individual, that was not my experience in the classroom. But when we look at the numbers over the last, I would say over the last decade, while most traditional STEM fields have experienced an increase of representation of women in, in hard sciences, so like chemistry, uh, physics, etc. That's not been the case with computer science. The number of women over the last decade has dropped in terms of those receiving bachelor's degrees to about 18%. But for women that are African-American, it's even less than that. It's about 3%. Wow. For Hispanics, it's about 1%. And it's a point something, 1% or 2% for Native American women. And so when we look at our representation in the industry, it makes sense if you look at that trajectory that there's only about three to five percent in companies working in the technology industry because we're not even graduating enough women to be able to get into this pipeline. And that's a, a thing that we and as well as other organizations are trying to reverse that trend but that will take time. And so when we do this work, we are very cognizant of the fact that 
we're working against this, this very much so a dearth of women going through college and even lasting through college and sticking within the discipline in order to get them in place in industry. Because many women that we talk to and experience that are mentors in the programs will tell us that they majored in a STEM degree or computer science initially when they came into college, but they did not stay in that discipline. They transferred out or moved into another field. And this is an opportunity for them to give back and try to change it for the next generation. Yeah, so I'm I'm thinking now about this particular field because I've been on a board of a college for a long time that has a computer science program, but I'm also hearing that it's possible to do quite well in this industry without a four-year degree. And there there are different kinds of programs that people can go through that would give them I guess some of the basic skills they need to get through and to get employed, at least in some aspects, maybe not necessarily software engineers, but they could get certain types of jobs, which pay quite well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, uh, you don't have to necessarily be a software engineer to get a good job paying good money. Are there opportunities for people in your estimation who may have said, I just want to get a two-year degree or I just want to, I don't want to go to four-year college. I just want to get some skills and get started in my, in my career. Are there, are those opportunities out there and is that a pathway? Absolutely. There's a startup organization that I really admire the work that they're doing called Career Karma that actually does somewhat of what you explained about giving some tangible skills to allow people to break into the tech industry. And they even work specifically with folks that are skilling up or retraining that may be in another career right now and don't have, I would say, the luxury of stopping and going back to school to get another college degree. And they're able to connect them into these tech boot camps and tech training classes that allow them to reskill the areas that they're interested in and move into some of the areas like database management. So I want parents to hear this and I want students especially to hear it because there are real opportunities to earn real money in an industry that desperately needs you. And so you need to figure out how to connect with some organizations. Now, Kimberly, let's talk about Black Girls Code. You started this organization because of this need that we we just talked about. How is it going? How did you get it started and how is it going? So I founded the organization back in 2011. Uh, We started as a very small pilot program here in the Bay Area with a class of about 10 to 12 girls. And from that pilot program in 2011, we formally created the organization in 2012. And the organization quickly expanded into a chapter-based model. So we currently have about 15 chapters in the U.S. 
multiple chapters in some states. So Dallas chapter, Houston chapter, but then we also have Miami, Florida, New York City. We have a DC, Seattle, Washington here in the in the West Coast, Los Angeles, Bay Area, Atlanta, Georgia. I always miss um, Detroit, Chicago. And soon a chapter opening in Charlotte, North Carolina, but one currently in Raleigh, Durham, North Carolina now as well, and one in Boston. So I think I got all of them. I probably really missed one. And there's also a chapter internationally in Johannesburg. So one of the things that we're able to do and what we learned quite early is really leverage the power of volunteers in those various cities to help us execute and run the programs from throughout the year. So the programs can be anything from a summer camp to a weekend workshop to a career panel. It could be a field trip. It could be a visit from someone within the tech field, such as like a, someone that's doing something in tech like athlete, but she does work in tech like Serena Williams or other executives that come in and talk to our students. But these activities, both enrichment as well as technical training opportunities happen throughout the year from January to December. And they happen ongoing in all these various cities and locations. We also, in 2020, switched to virtual programming as well. So there's opportunity now for students, wherever they may be, Located, They don't have to be in a chapter city to tap into some of these classes and even do some of the summer training camps online, which has allowed us to expand our reach even further. So probably I would estimate about 30,000 plus students have been a part of our programs or attended a program over the last 11 years and really hoping to continue to see that grow and expand. And so we, we hope to extend it more chapters as well as more students participating in the work. How were you able to get it off the ground and see it expand into now 15 cities? It took a lot of hard work, but I will say, say luck. So I, I say that both are necessary when you're doing something and building building something that hasn't been done before and when you're building something from the ground up. So, you know, when I talk about these luck potential, I would say that, you know, when we first started as a pilot program, the example I would use there would be that we had some type of press and media, and I don't really recall what it was, but we had created a website, we had a web presence, but, you know, we're doing this very small pilot program. And it just so happened that an executive that worked at, at another technical consultancy, a tech consulting company in their community um, outreach division or something of that nature, was just doing a Google search about programs that taught students about coding and some way our organization popped up through a Google search. That's how they found us. And they reached out out of the blue and was like, hey, we would like to support you and, and help you to you know seed your pro and grow your program. Now, I did not know anyone in this company. We we you know this was still in the Bay Area, San Francisco company or division is what they connected us to. I did not know them. They didn't know us, but they saw something about us that popped up on the web and 
we were in position for them to really support our growth initially. So they brought in our their engineers as resources. We started to do our programs within their office. They would pay for the food, give us laptops to do the training on, give us resources in terms of their employees. And many of those early workshops that we did in various cities, we held them in their location, in their headquarters in Houston or their headquarters in Dallas. And that's really was some of the most important, I would say, firsthand support that we got in terms of in-kind support that really helped us to grow and scale as an organization. And I would say hard work from the standpoint that in the beginning, you know, I tell the story often, we did not have any funding. Like we had the funding that we received in the early days was really from my 401k. And that's what we mm. use. I had one grant, the very first company to give us a grant in early 2012 was Google. And I, I want to think, if I recall, it was like something relatively small for a nonprofit, just starting like $20,000 or something. But that was amazing to us like just that oh someone actually gave us twenty thousand dollars this is amazing (laughs) so we actually have some seed funding and you know that didn't last very long but we got it and so over the years we really put in the work to really build this presence to do this work as well as to build i would say a reputation if you will for the work that we were doing that was good in the community and in this space So that by the time we were in 2020, and there really was this focus on Black-led organizations as well as Black leaders that were doing this work to do good in the community, we were then positioned for folks to know about us and to know about our work and to point to our work and to really receive this exponential outpouring of support that was transformational for our organization. But it took us 10 years to get there, you know, and really doing the work, doing the hard work and showing up every day to make a difference for our girls. So you have these 15 chapters. Obviously, we could probably have a thousand chapters and not meet the need. But 15 is a lot. I wonder if do you get any support at all from governments? Because I would think that given the need for people that something like the department of labor or maybe some of the state employment organizations might think about supporting an organization like yours. I I wonder if there was any ever, ever any thought of that or if you got anywhere, if you tried to pursue that. That's a great question. That is some of the areas that we have been exploring in recent years over the past couple of years to be exact, in terms of really tapping into a lot of the programs from National Science Foundation, Department of Labor, even some of the local and state governments have programs around um, workforce development that really fit nicely in terms of the work that we're doing and teaching these technical skills to this next generation of the workforce. So we have not really dived deeply into that pool, but there's definitely opportunity there. And there are certain peer organizations that are within our ecosystem that we do know who tap into those opportunities. So 
I think for us, we were a bit accustomed to basically because we started in the Bay Area, to be honest, really having uh, probably our biggest funnel for foundation support coming from corporations. So like the Googles, the Microsofts, et cetera, and only recent and later years really started to look at the more traditional avenues to support in terms of governmental funding. But there are those, definitely those opportunities are available. Yeah. I think the Biden administration ought to know about what you're doing. They, They probably do, but they need to, um, find a way to get you some money because we could have these chapters in all cities. I, I think of where I grew up in Philadelphia and I look at some of the, uh, the challenges that that city faces right now with unemployment and young kids not graduating high school, but still having the talent and the ability to go far in life if they get exposure to certain opportunities. You mm-hmm. know? And mm-hmm. uh, I just wish that more schools could find ways to partner with organizations like yours, you know, where you have a skill set, you have, te- you have technology, you have, you have uh, the experienced volunteers who are willing to work with kids. I mean, even if it didn't have to happen during school hours, it could happen after hours right. where every day they spend an hour or two, you know, working on a problem and learning how to code a little bit and, getting exposure to the industry and getting that appetite. You know how mm-hmm. it is once you get that appetite for something, you just, you want more and more. Right. And I think this is so important, Kimberly, because we're only going to see technology increase in importance in our lives. And I worry that with only one or 2% African-Americans working in those industries right now, that if we don't figure out a way to address this, we're going to be completely shut out. Mm -hmm. And that can't be good for our country. It certainly can't be good for our people. And again, I keep telling people it's about the money too. You know, you you get paid serious money working in this industry right now. Absolutely. And I just feel that that could be also transformational for people who may have come from disadvantaged backgrounds and who nonetheless could in one generation change their whole family trajectory by getting the right kind of job in the tech industry. And it's not impossible to learn. Absolutely. I mean, I think a lot of times we think of tech and we just get mystified, but I think it's repetition. I don't know what you think. What is, what is some of the great, this is a great question to ask. So if you could model, Right. The skill sets that it takes or the the requirements that it takes a person to become competent, let's say. In the tech industry, what are some of the key attributes that a person needs to possess? Well, I I think that's a great question. And um, one of the things that I always use as an example is basic problem solving skills or what we are really teaching in all of the various coding languages that we utilize within the program is computational thinking skills. And basically what that is, is teaching you how to ask the right questions first so that you can solve a problem, right? It's really basic problem solving skills. And and I think this the science to computational thinking is what really what computer science is all about. 
And so an, any engineer that's a software engineer will, will always refer to fondly the peanut butter and jelly sandwich example that a lot of coders programs use as a, a tangible example of teaching how to think or ask the right questions. And how that works is that we'll often stand in front of a very first time coding class with all of the ingredients to make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, but then tell the students, okay, what we need you to do, you're the computer. So tell the instructor what to do. So you're going to tell this instructor, you, and that's the same, mimicking the same thing that happens when you write a computer program. Give us the instructions on how to put this peanut butter and jelly sandwich together. Now, if you have not done this exercise before, and for most young people or even adults that are doing it, you know, that may seem simple because, every, of course, everybody knows how to put together a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. But do you know how to specifically word it so this computer or program, in this case, a teacher, does exactly the things and steps in the right sequence that will end up in a peanut butter and jelly sandwich at the end? And that exercise, like I said, is really to teach you how to think like a computer, what writing code actually is, the instructional basis of it. And indirectly, this is the computational knowledge that we are trying to embed in students when we teach them a coding program. So I think getting students unafraid of this learning process of of learning these computational skills is what's necessary. Does it include math? Absolutely. So I think a lot of people are afraid of computer science because of the, the aspect of math that is involved. But we see oftentimes that students that are part of our program can get past that and even see an increase in their competency in other programs within their school in the math because of this thought process of computational thinking that they're really starting to master as part of the computer science lessons. And so I think for us, we see the work as just really scratching the surface, getting students interested and comfortable with these skill sets, because you don't necessarily have to be a software engineer. You could be a program manager. You can be a data analyst. You may have interest in the cybersecurity aspect of, you know, an organization. There's so many different branches to computer science and the industry and technology that students can find their place, even in the creative side of becoming a designer. They may be a front, maybe are they're artists and they're interested in the front end design. They may be interested in doing the UX, UI, you know, the user interface and like how folks interact with the program. So I think for us, it's just like really exposing them, getting them to find their passion somewhere in the field and then take advantage of all these opportunities. Because almost any place you touch within those areas that I explained and more you know, there's opportunity to learn, grow, and build a very profitable and, and fruitful career. Well, Kimberly, let me ask you this, because we're getting to the end. What do you need? What do you need to have this in every community that should have it? What do you actually need and how do we get it to you? Well, I think as an organization, what Black Girls Code needs is is more support. So definitely having folks that are 
um, tied to either municipal organizations and various cities that can make an opportunity available to bring a Black Girl School program into a school, a community center, et cetera, or even folks that are tied into corporate positions to bring support to the program in these various areas. We often partner with, for example, a company like a Microsoft um, to launch a chapter in Seattle or other companies that will support our launching in various cities because it does take assets to do that. Those are some of the things that we need. And I think in places where we already have a presence, you can certainly need opportunities for folks to come in and volunteer, uh, make space for us and their organizations so that we can host these chapter programs and host these summer programs and their corporate spaces, et cetera. So being able to really tap in where you have access and reach out to us to you know, help us build our footprint in more places, both here in the U.S. and beyond. And if you can't do any of those things, I, we can always accept donations to support the work and continue to to build as we have this big vision of reaching a million girls by 2040. Super. Well, you've been listening to Kimberly Bryant, who's our guest today on the Heart of Giving podcast. Kimberly is the founder of Black Girls Code, and it's an organization that I believe is vitally important because of its mission to get more black girls interested in the profession, technological professions, and ultimately trained and employed because there is such a gap right now between the available positions and the number of young people who have taken these careers as an interest. So Kimberly, I want to thank you for joining the show today. And I want to wish you continued success in building this organization and helping these young girls get a foothold in this important profession. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure, Art. And really, thank you for highlighting and shining a light on programs such as ours. It it means a lot. Well, to all of our listeners, thank you for tuning in. And you can find other editions of the Heart of Giving podcast on all major podcast platforms. And if you'd like to make a donation, we certainly would appreciate that. You can donate to us at give.org, G-I-V-E dot O-R-G. And we will certainly put that donation to good use, both with this podcast and the other work that we're doing at give.org to make it easier for donors to make informed giving decisions. Thank you for listening. You've just listened to the Heart of Giving podcast with Art Taylor. Be sure to tune in next time for a brand new episode. To listen to our other interviews, visit heartgiving.podbean.com. That's heartgiving.podbean.com. Subscribe to our show on major podcast platforms. The thoughts and opinions expressed on this podcast are the views and opinions of the guests, not those of the BBB Wise Giving Alliance or program affiliates. This podcast is for information and educational purposes only and is copyrighted with all rights reserved. This podcast is protected by Podbean's Terms of Service.